just not what I am, even though my zip code has changed. I might smile and enjoy where I'm currently employed. Your soul can't be rearranged. But it's hard to understand. It's so hard to understand. Farewell, fam. It's episode 21 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky. Next to me is Ryan Topp. And J.P. Breen was able to get away from purifying himself in the waters of Lake Minnetonka to join us on the phone. <laughs> no? You don't like that? <laughs> I had ready do you even know where do you, do you even have an idea where Lake Minnetonka is? I know where Lake Minnetonka is at. I do not actually know where you are at right I now. I do. I am it. I am at least two hours away from it. I, I figured you were actually further north than that, but you know, if I was going I'm to make a reference north. to purifying yourself in a lake in Minnesota, you know, it, especially in these temperatures, it's more of a polar bear club. I figured I'd pick Lake Minnetonka. So um, that's fine. Uh, anyways, uh, we're waiting for that big move by the Brewers, but until that time, we have what are we saying? Ulysse? Ulysse. Ulysse Chassin. Ulysse. Yeah, yeah, Ulysse Chassin. Uh, his signing to talk about and plenty of listener questions. You can rate and review Milwaukee's Tailgate on iTunes. It helps fans find the podcast, so just take a minute, leave five stars, and write something nice about us. Uh, we want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, check out the Mix Pre 3 and Mix Pre 6. For more information, visit sounddevices.com. Okay, the last time we got together to talk was right after the Ivani Gallardo signing. Uh, some details did emerge from that. He's getting a couple million dollars on a one-year deal. And it's non-guaranteed? Yeah, it's a pretty, yeah, it's a non-guaranteed deal. He can double the salary, I believe, uh, depending on bonuses. And what was interesting about the bonuses that they set in there was they did it both based on innings pitched and, I believe, games finished. Is that correct, JP? I believe so, but I'm not 100% sure. So they left themselves the flexibility that he could be rewarded either for pitching out of the bullpen or for uh, racking up innings as a starter. So they sort of left themselves the flexibility there, which gives you an indication that they see his role as not being firmly set in stone either. They're not sure where they're going to use him yet. They, they brought stands. in an arm. Right. And they got it for a decent price. Right. And like you said, it's a non-guaranteed contract. So, yeah, it's it nothing to get like excited very, about. No. Don't worry about Giovanni Gallardo having to fill that you know, final starting spot in the rotation or having important leverage innings out of the bullpen. We don't know what he's going to do. I would imagine based on just generally kind of how this stuff works, like they wouldn't have signed him if they were, if this was pure speculation, there's a pretty good chance he's going to break camp with the team and he'll get that guaranteed $2 million. But if he shows up in camp and just, he doesn't have it anymore. If it looks bad, then they have that option to, you know, cut ties with him and say so long. Uh, but that's probably not overly likely. No, I, I think I, I was going to say, I think the biggest thing that we've learned from the Gallardo details for the contract is that basically this is a stopgap or this is a, this is a, uh, a plan C, I guess. Like this is somebody that if they can't land a bigger fish via trade or via free agency to be able to bolster the starting rotation. And that, and this was even before Chassin came in then they would have somebody who could take the ball every fifth day and has shown that he could take the ball every fifth day, even though it's not necessarily something that you'd want to, to rely upon. And that if they are able to get a Jake Arrieta or they're able to swing a trade or, or you know, even if it's Lance Lynn or whomever, if they can land somebody like that, and now that they've got Chessine and he comes in during camp and it just doesn't really work out of the bullpen, they can cut ties and it's not a big deal. But it's a deal that clearly was meant to give flexibility to give them somebody to fall back on in case some of the other big plans that they've had percolating don't come through because they are working on other, they are working on other things. Um, and I don't say that in terms of like 
I mean, I know that they are working on other things and it, nothing might happen um, because there are a lot of, there are a lot of balls in play and there are a lot of things moving about, but um, the Brewers are not standing pat and they're not necessarily working on small things either. They're, they're working on a lot of things and they have their hands in a lot of different pies. So it's a, it's a matter of what works out. Um, but Gallardo gives them the flexibility for it. If nothing does happen, they've got somebody that can fill a roster spot and take the ball if, they, if needed, but it's not somebody that they really want to plan around. Yeah. And I mean, we should remember, you know, looking at the Brewers, we keep waiting for some kind of move to happen, but there really hasn't been any major moves in baseball yet. Like, no, we it, haven't seen any of the big dominoes fall. It's still really static yeah. on the free agent market. The trade market's moved a little bit, but even that's been, you know, not as crazy as we've seen some years. And a lot of it's been teams shifting around, especially the Marlins shifting around salary. Like we haven't seen, you know, major, major prospect for uh, proven talent trades, even in large numbers yet either. Yeah. So uh, again, you know, we might get a little impatient, but I'm sure if you find podcasts for every other team around baseball, they would all be arguing the same thing right now. So uh, anyways, the Brewers did go out and get Ulysse Chassin. Uh, He was with the Padres last season. He put up a 389 ERA, 127 whip. His Dre was just over four. So, I mean, he had a pretty decent season. Um but I know a lot of people kind of did a little hand-wringing once they saw the splits at home. He had a 179 ERA, um, but when he got on the road, he was a 653 ERA and barely you know, covered any innings. So I, I don't know if people are worried once he's outside of San Diego, if we're going to see that he was a mirage and his you know, stat line isn't as good, or maybe it's just a matter of you know, the Brewers are going to be a better fit for him. What do you think, Ryan? I mean, even more so than just that, you look at a guy who at home was – he made 16 starts at home and 16 on the road, and he threw 100 innings in those 16 starts at home and only threw 80 innings on the road. So, Well, you, when you're giving up that many runs, yeah, you're not yeah, going to cover that many innings. You can't cover that many innings. You're going to get knocked out of games early, and you know that's, that's how that's going to go. And what they really need out of him, I think, more than anything, is to try to get somebody who can eat innings for them and keep things uh, – Keep the, the bullpen a little bit rested. Even if they're not great innings, you're, you're just looking for somebody to eat innings. And hopefully he can be that guy. There's, you know, yeah, there's some indicators that, you know, perhaps he's he's not, you know, hit the skids at the 30-year-old uh, mark like a lot of pitchers have because his velocity is maintaining or ticking up. But other than that, you've just – you really just kind of sit there and hope that he can he can kind of keep going. What do you think, J.P.? Um, it's, it's hard to really figure out what chess, what chasing is for me, just because first of all, needing to recalibrate what a league average DRA is and the fact that 416 sounds bad, but it's actually better than league average. So those sorts of things need to be recalibrated based on the fact of whether you think it was a, a juice ball or what do you, whether or not you just think it's a different offensive environment or whatever. Like, as, as people who are analyzing the team or fans in general, people need to recalibrate what is league average starting pitching. And Chassin was able to be a better-than-average starter. The, I'm not necessarily concerned about his road and home splits. I just don't think that that's a large enough sample to really get all worked up about for last year. There are tons of people who pitch better at home, regardless of the, the park effects. Well, I think that was just a-, a matter of it's such an extreme split. Absolutely. That's but, why I mean, it sticks out. It's, it's exact- just so extreme. Absolutely. But I would be much more concerned about it if he wasn't relying, if he's not primarily a ground ball pitcher, right? I mean, if this is somebody who's a fly ball pitcher and, and relies on the fact that the Padres, and by the way, the Padres had a really terrible defense. So that's not necessarily something to say if they need more ground to cover in the outfield or anything like that, but that's actually a positive thing for Chessie. And I'm much more concerned about the fact that Chassin has such terrible platoon splits and that he actually doesn't have a repertoire that regularly gets out uh, left-handed hitters. And I think that one of the interesting things about seeing a front-loaded deal like Chassin got was that it seems to me that they are almost paying him to be a starter in 2018 and preparing to pay him to be a reliever in 2019. And that seems to track in terms of Jimmy Nelson coming back in terms of 
you know, Hayter, Woodruff, you know, whether it's Ortiz or whether it's Burns or whether who, whoever you want to say is coming up to the system, that the Brewers should not necessarily need Chassin to be a starter in 2019. And that given his platoon splits, given his, the way that his, you know, his sinker and slider have just been the dynamic against right-handed hitters, he actually profiles as somebody who should be pretty good out of the pen. Uh, so I've actually been much more interested in the fact of, you know, whether or not he is seen as a back-end starter in 2018. They're willing to deal with the platoon foot. They just want him to be able to come in and eat in at a, league, at a league average pace, you know, much like a Jason Vargas or whomever, uh, which is something that I was actually saying I think the Brewers needed. So in that way, I think Chasin fits, but he is a really interesting candidate to be moved to the bullpen, whether it's when Jimmy Nelson comes back or whether it's in 2019 or whatever. So that was actually one of the more interesting things about the Chassin deal for me. Yeah, I think that it's interesting to see them do that front loading that you're talking about where they're paying him, I believe, two million more in it was like eight point five and six point five. It's eight and six. And there's like a one and a half million dollar uh, signing bonus. bonus that was in there. OK, yeah. And it's interesting to see them do that. That was something that the the Chicago Cubs did quite a bit of as they were on their sort of path back to relevance in 2013, 2014, when they were trying to build back up and get to that, uh, to that point, to leave themselves the flexibility to take a, in a time period where they had a lower payroll and could afford to, to front load things. And I know I was talking to my brother who's a Cubs fan about this, and he was saying that, yeah, they had to work around MLB rules a little bit and talk to them about how much you could actually front load a deal because MLB does not necessarily appreciate that. Um, or the union doesn't appreciate it. I'm not sure exactly who, but it's probably the union. Yeah. Cause don't they want increasing salary numbers? So that yeah. way they have that as a baseline. They definitely, they're not, they're not a fan of front loading. So, um, so there's, there's that to look at. I am interested to see if he is, if he is not successful, like the worst case scenario for him, if he does turn out to be bad, um, just how obligated they're going to feel to keep him around as the time progresses. Uh, it's only a two-year deal, so they have they have a short window there anyway. But um, he seems like a guy that you know things could definitely go south on more so than maybe we're used to with guys that sign for that kind of money. It's it's sort of an indication of how much the game has changed. Where if you were signing a guy a few years ago for that kind of money, the thought of them being potentially non-rostered was unthinkable. You know, a non-rostered guy making that kind of money would be you know, harder to imagine for the Brewers. And it, that seems to have changed. So we'll see. It's, it's a speculative ad, and it gives, them, it gives them innings, hopefully, in 2017, which is really the big thing that they were looking for. So... Nothing to get excited about, but nothing, you know, I don't know. He's going to be in the rotation. He's going to be in the rotation, you would think, at least to open the year. Yeah. Bar, barring any yeah, sort of health. Sure. Yeah, barring any sort of health issues. Um, if he's healthy, he'll be in the rotation at least to start the year. But maybe you, yeah, maybe the, the thing to look at is they are hoping to, to move him to the bullpen down the road. That would be. But it's also a decent gamble because if he does something like he did last year in San Diego, it's great. If he's, you know, not that guy and he gets moved to the bullpen the following year, it's low cost. So, um, I, you know, it's what you're going to do at this point before, like, bigger free agents go. Yeah, and Absolutely. it does, it and does I, give them a safety blanket, too. Like, it gives them – or a safety net, I probably is a better way to say it. Especially can line us from peanuts. Um, it gives them a safety net where they don't have to do – some of these bigger things that JP was alluding to being potentially in the pipeline, they can, they, they're somewhat set. They, they have a credible team to be able to put on the field at least. Yeah. JP, any final thoughts right. on Chassin? Well, I just think that Chassin in a lot of ways, in an interesting sense, is what a lot of people wanted Peralta to be. I mean, he's a, he's a sinker bowler and a, and a slider pitcher, right? But his slider's better than Peralta, and he's going to get the ground balls like Peralta. like he doesn't have the power sinker that Peralta has that's so attractive to see but like Chassin has the off-speed pitch to be able to be more successful than Peralta and it'll be interesting to see that like 
that kind of profile coming to Miller Park and, and how successful it is because, you know, with, with Arcia and even Shaw was, was decent. I mean, he doesn't have big range at first base, but he's solid. And at second base, if they go with Sogard or they, or they bring somebody else in at second base who's a, a quality defensive second baseman, he could actually be pretty solid. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening. But I, I do think that Chastain is much more of an interesting guy than I expected him to be when, he, when we first signed him. And I think that it's because I regularly forget that the pod, Padres exist. Um, that, like, you just didn't – like, I didn't pay any attention to Chastain in general. Uh, but then after digging in and watching some video and, and talking to some other people, like, he's much more interesting than I was expecting. So I actually like the deal quite a bit. And he's not like a non-prospect kind of guy. I think he was somebody that at least had a little bit of heat around him when he was coming up. Like there were some expectations. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the biggest thing was that he just never developed the third pitch that he needed to be successful. Right. Um, and he, and you know, and his command is not necessarily what you would want it to be. Um, but you know, there, I, he's also, I don't, I don't want to, to, to suggest that this is a situation in which he's going to come in and Derek Johnson's going to do something phenomenal and he's going to come in and be a legitimate rotation starter because of the magic Derek Johnson has, has done with you know Chase Anderson and whatnot. But it's at least a, a, a somebody who has a history of success, somebody who has the tools to be successful. Um, and if they, can, if they can somehow figure out a way to simplify his mechanics, uh, get him, you know, get find more rhythm, whether or not it's changing where he stands on the mound or or what it is, it'll be interesting to see what the Brewers are bringing in because he's got he's got the raw stuff. He's got the sinker slider to be able to be successful. He either just needs to throw more strikes or he needs to develop a third pitch. Um, and obviously, that's not something that you want to bank on happening just because of the the track record that exists. But it's at least something that's interesting to be able to bring into the system as a back end rotation guy. And if he can surprise you, that's great. And if not, it seems to me that his floor is to be a useful middle reliever if not you know maybe a little bit more if his fastball picks up so it's 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 not something that i actually think is going to come in and be an impact thing but i thought it was so i had just written it off as something akin to what i was thinking that giovanni gallardo would bring in and that was a mistake when i was thinking about it uh and it's at least much i I understand this much more than i understand bringing in gallardo and thinking that you know, we're magically going to make that happen. And I know that everybody doesn't really care about Gallardo because it's a non-guaranteed deal and everyone's like, well, why not? But it still is a roster spot. You have to figure out how to, 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 to work into the system. So, yeah, I mean, I, I actually like the Chastain deal quite a lot more than I thought, uh, but with the caveat of, like, thinking he's a back-end starter or, you know, a middle reliever. I think after we've seen what Derek Johnson, getting back to what you mentioned there, after we've seen Derek Johnson do some things with some starters, the, the fact that he seems to have found what had been missing in Jimmy Nelson's game and perhaps discovered, helped uh, Chase Anderson discover some more velocity and get him going a little bit more. Well, and he's gotten guys to throw strikes. Right, and it, that's also... So I think it's worth always sort of considering that perhaps when they're bringing guys in like Shasin, that there may have been some level of, well, this is a guy that does some things that we particularly like that uh, that we think, you know, Derek Johnson could work with or that Johnson himself has said, hey, this is a guy that I've I've seen and I think that, you know, I have some ideas about what could potentially help him find the next level. So we don't know that, but it's always worth kind of considering, especially at this point after we've seen Johnson have the success that he had last season that it's at least yes, a possibility do, that it hangs out to, there I, I do want to get us into a spot I don't want us to as a fan base or as analysts you know for people who are listening like the whole appeal to authority or whether it's Dan Worthen or whether it's you know Dave Duncan or whether it's Ray Searage like these pitching coaches can't just magically fix people um and just being like, well, they're bringing in so-and-so to be able to hand to this pitching coach, and they're going to work their magic, and he's going to magically work out. Because what that does is it, it ignores all of the cases that don't work out, and you end up just like focusing on the two or three that, you know, it's the whole thing that the Cubs fans are doing with Chris Fazio and, and Jake Arrieta. They were saying because Arietta, you know, was fixed under Chris Fazio, that Fazio could fix whomever. 
and that any signing or any trade was good because Bosio was there. Um, and it's the same thing that any pitcher who ended up going to Pittsburgh, Ray Searage is there. So magically everything is great. Um, we heard that with Don Cooper have, too. Like, yeah. And you have like your, your Ivan Nova who like is magically a good pitcher in, in Pittsburgh. And so that should be counted as a win for Ray Searage. But I don't like, I don't like an analysis and when it just comes into a, well, you know, well, it's non-guaranteed, so who cares? Or, well, we're going to give it to, to Derek Johnson, so we'll see what happens. Because ultimately that's non-verifiable, it's non-falsifiable, and it just seems to me to be much, nothing more than hope. And those are the types of things that I get a little bit annoyed by. I'd much rather, like, deal with uh, some of the concrete things that we've been talking about that Justine goes with and that's not to, to criticize anybody who's been talking about it but i've seen some things in which people are on twitter in which people are just being like well Derek johnson's here and that's not anything that we really want to focus on okay so i don't know if you guys know this but i totally forgot about our email there for a couple weeks <laughs> i always plug it on the i always plug it on the intro but i forgot about it and we actually had a bunch of questions pile up so i apologize well for i'm that. not i'm not professional enough to check it yeah, I know you don't. That's why I know if I don't check it, then, uh, yeah, that stuff gets lost. So, um, Anyways, Jason Donlinger asks, uh, would you rather move Santana or Brinson as a centerpiece in a deal to land a starter like Chris Archer or Marcus Stroman? Huh. That's a great question. It is. And everybody's got to stop and think about it for a second, don't they? Yeah. Um, and, I, I mean, I will give my answer right away. I, I would much rather move Santana. Um, and this is kind of coming into a lot of things that I've talked about on Twitter and that, you know, people who do read the, the baseball perspectives annual, that'll be out in a couple of months. I wrote, I wrote about, uh, Domingo Santana for that as well. And I, I'm, I liked Domingo Santana a lot more than I did 12 months ago. Um, I was skeptical of whether or not I thought he was going to be able to come in and be a league average right fielder. And he was able to come in and actually provide legit offensive production. Uh, he was one of the best hitters in the team. Like, no question, he's still young. Um, but Santana's also somebody who has the kind of profile that scares me. And it scares me because it's relying on two different things. It's relying on, on BABIP. It's relying on his batting average on balls and play. And that was one of the highest in Major League Baseball last year. But he also is somebody who strikes out a lot. And I know that a lot of people are like, yeah, but strikeouts don't really matter. But it's the kind of strikeouts that Domingo Santana has. It's the fact that he actually, like, the vast majority of his strikeouts come at pitches he misses inside the zone. Because he actually has a pretty good eye. He has an idea of what he's doing at the plate. But he's got so many holes in his swing that he actually had one of the lowest contact percentages in the entire league. One of the, the top ten uh, lowest contact percentages on pitches in the actual strike zone in the league last year. And it's a profile that like in a lot of ways last year was kind of as good as it could possibly get unless something changes, unless like he can close holes in his swing or unless he can sustain like a 370 or 380 batting average on balls and play the batting average is going to fall. I think the power is obviously legit. But if the batting average falls and the defense is still bad, what he becomes is Chris Davis. And Chris Davis is at best a two-win player. And again, that's useful, and that is much more than like the low end of what, uh, you know, if that's like what a, an, a, a solid projection of Domingo Santana is, that's actually more than I thought 12 months ago. But that's also not somebody that you build around. And that is not what I would think a reasonable pro projection of Lewis Brinson would bring. Because Lewis Brinson has the potential to be a stud. Domingo Santana does not. I don't think Domingo Santana can be a five or six win player. And I do think that Lewis Brinson can be. And so if I had to decide who I was going to move for somebody like Chris Archer or Marcus Stroman, it would be Domingo Santana. Now, does Brinson's athleticism, defense, and stuff like that, does that just give him a high enough floor that you're willing to take the risk of moving a guy who's a little bit more of a proven commodity? For me, yes. And I think that if you are, again, if you're moving for somebody like Chris Archer, it's not, it's not with your eye on 2018. And 
you are going to be willing to let Lewis Brinson grow into the team. And it's, and it's looking at 2019 when you're going to have ideally uh, Jimmy Nelson back for a full season. You're going to have Chris Archer for a full season. You'll have, you know, unless injuries happen, you'll have, you know, Zach Davies coming back. You'll have uh, Chase Anderson hopefully is able to, to stay somewhat uh, sustainable in which you can be a mid rotation starter. And suddenly things start to look a lot better. Once you start thinking of the fact that, you know, you're going to have the guys from AAA and AA really start to knock on the door again as well. So the team starts to hit its stride in 2019. And I don't necessarily know if Domingo Santana is somebody you're going to rely on to be an anchor of your team in 2019, where Lewis Brinson is somebody that you think can be that guy. Yeah, I think that I agree with you, and I would I would definitely make the play. I think that we have to understand, though, when we say that, that you are accepting then that if you make a trade like that, you are saying if you're if you're trading Domingo Santana and you know creating the space for Lewis Brinson to play every day, that's what has to happen, and you have to live with that for Absolutely. for a good long while. Even if he's even if he struggles, even if things are not coming together, even if you know there's there's a lot of pressure to make a change to work other people into the lineup you're going to have to stick with that. If you make that decision that we're going to move somebody like Domingo Santana to create room for Lewis Brinson to get absolutely every day at bats, you're going to have to live with the struggles. And that's going to be difficult as the team gets more and more competitive. Hopefully it gets harder and harder to deal with that. But it's something that I think that Bruce fans, we're going to have to steal ourselves for this, that if we're going to make this work, if we're going to make this, this, constant trying to to contend by you know pretty regularly integrating young players into the lineup you're gonna have to deal with growing pains you're gonna have to deal with young players who don't hit the ground running always and you're gonna have to just live with some of that and understand that sometimes it does limit the ceiling if you have a a number of those players it's going to limit the ceiling on a team in a given year as you're trying to sort out and figure out who can play and who can't and what you're going to do going forward you have to you have to sort of take that into account, and that in, in this time period can be very tricky for a franchise trying to get up and competing because that stuff is really hard to do. It's hard to stick with people who are failing and to to have the uh, sort of just the the confidence that they're going to end up turning it around eventually. We saw it the last time the Brewers went through a cycle like this where they had to keep putting Ricky Weeks out there all the time. Time and time again. And finally, well, hold in on 2009, he figured it out. Hold but... on a second. I mean, I think part of that depends on who you have as a manager for the team. Because you have some managers who are going to push back and say, I want veterans that I know the production I can get. And you have other guys. Ned Yost was a guy who just, no matter what was going on, stuck up for his guys, the young guys that were you know, getting trotted out there every day and struggling. So, you know, I think Council's yeah, probably more Craig... the type that he's, he's Council's going to stick with these guys because he knows that's his job. Well, right. Right. Well, and, and council's not a moron, right? Like council understands, council understands that you need to allow guys to, to produce and that council is not somebody who is fighting for his job. And that's something that's important to recognize where there are a lot of managers that are fighting for their job. They're fight. They're, they're brought in. I mean, we've seen it with whether it's the nationals or whether, you know, whoever it is like, People are getting sacked if they don't produce, even if they are making the playoffs. And those are the types of people that don't have the ability to sit back and wait for these young players to, to succeed or allow them to fail a little bit and give them the time and space to do that. Uh, Council's not on the hot seat. And if they come in next year and they struggle, I still don't think that Council is in any, I don't think he's in any danger of losing his job because I don't think there's anything that Council is really bad at. And I know a lot of people will come in and they'll say, wow, he sucks at, you know, managing a bullpen. But there has never been a manager in the history of baseball who anyone thinks is good at managing their bullpen unless they have a a bullpen that is just phenomenal. Right. Joe Girardi was really good at it last year because he had eight guys. (laughs) Right. Well, Ned Ned Yost on that that World Series run all of a sudden was a great uh, manager for Kansas City. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because all of a sudden he turns out Wade Davis was kind of good. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I don't have a lack of confidence that the organization is going to stick with this. It's going to be more the fans have to just deal with the fact that things are going to be rocky at times in the transition to Well, gosh darn it, that's why that. they should just not crowdsource lineups anymore. <laughs> and, <Right>? also, <laughs> and that's also why we exist, right? That, we, we, that exist why we, exist. To, we exist to tell people to calm down a little bit. <laughs> Well, I would assume if somebody's listening, they're probably relatively calm. So we're probably just preaching to the choir at this point. So uh, anyways, uh, we're going to move on. Um, James Anderson asks, uh, which player from the Doug Melvin, Jack Z era were you most wrong about in terms of how you viewed them as a prospect versus how they actually turned out? Ryan, do you have anybody that comes to mind? Yeah, the two I thought of right away, Matt Laporta, but that's, I mean, he left and he was gone. Manny Parr is the one I stuck with forever and just refused to believe that, like, because he was good when he first came up. He came up and had a very good run in 2008. People kind of forget that he was a very effective starter for quite a while before he kind of fell off at the end of the season. And going into 2009, we sort of thought that, like, well, maybe maybe this could work with Giovanni Gallardo as a budding young uh a budding young star pitcher which he ended up becoming and Manny Parra maybe not too far behind him that they could end up stringing those two guys at the front of the rotation together and adding in your your random you know god who all did they even have the guy from the Cardinals the um which one <laughs> yeah uh Braden Looper Braden Looper yeah like that they could string those guys in together along with, you know, Supon, who at that point was... Do I win that trivia contest yes, as well? Yes, you win that trivia contest as well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Manny Parr just... And then and then I had n- renewed hope when he went to the bullpen. I'm like, he's going to be a lights-out reliever. He's going to be so good out of the bullpen. It's going to work now. And then it didn't work there either. And he was just a very, very mediocre big league pitcher for it, a long time. It never helped that he just had, like, crazy mechanics. It just seemed like there's so many moving parts. Yeah. I mean, he was just a guy that it just seemed like he couldn't put everything together at once. And I I always look at his mechanics in his delivery and I'm like, well, if to manage all of that and get it, you know, a good outcome just seems like it's going to be really difficult. So JP, do you have anybody that, you know, what you saw them as coming up just was completely different from uh, what they ended up being as a major leaguer? Uh, yeah, I mean, to different, to different respects, right? Like I thought, like the guy I immediately thought of was Zach Braddock and I, I really liked Zach Braddock a lot. I mean, he had some stuff that could just disappear on hitters as a lefty. He was, and like, it's a little bit unfair to go with Zach Braddock just because he had, he had his own personal issues that, that held, that made it very, very difficult for him to to develop and to progress. And, and he had to deal with those things. Um, you know, and people who want to read about that, I'm sure can find it on the internet. And like, and it was much bigger of a deal that he was personally healthy, um, than, than anything else. But he was a guy who even, I think he went to the Orioles after that and just couldn't really make it work. And I, I really liked Zach Braddock a lot. And I, I do think that another guy who I just like, I thought Taylor Green could hit. Like, I watched him in coming up through the minors. Like, I saw him in person. I saw him in video. I saw him watching, like, minor league games online. Like, the dude could hit right-handers like nobody's business. And I just, like, it, it just didn't work when it got to the big league level. Um, and he's actually a scout with the Brewers at the moment. And, and he's somebody that just, like, I just couldn't figure out how – it worked in AAA, and part of it was that he he didn't necessarily use the opposite field all that well. You know, he struggled against lefties, but he was somebody who could deal with velocity. He could pull the baseball, and he could hit for power, and it just didn't work. Um, and that was just somebody that I just I, I couldn't really figure out how it happened. I was um, so happy but, when they chose Brantley over him, when the Indians had the choice between taking him and Brantley, and they took Brantley. I was, uh, I, wasn't, I, was but, I was happy that they took Brantley over Green because I thought Green was going to be good too. Green was the name at that time. I thought Green was, yeah. was going to be an ascending player over the next few years, and it just, yeah, that didn't happen. 
Yeah. I mean, there are, there are other guys too. Like, even if you look back at like Brett Lowry and whatever the, whatever the Blue Jays did to his swing. I mean, they tried to make it, they tried to give him a little bit more loft. They tried to give him a little bit more power. And I mean, he vastly changed his swing from when he was in Milwaukee to when he went to Toronto and it just didn't work for him. Um, but man, when he was, when he was with the Timber Rattlers, Obviously, he had his makeup issues. He had his run-ins with the organization and with managers, and they, they butted heads a lot. And that was like one of the main reasons he ended up moving on. But when it came to keeping the bat in the zone and being able to work pitchers and being able to sting the ball across the field, man, he was legit when he was uh, when he was an able. Uh, I he was so heads and shoulders better than everybody at the plate. Uh, but I I thought he was going to be able to hit no matter what. The Blue Jays just came in and tried to retool his swing, and he just lost it. Um, and that one was so work. weird. That's weird because like he was showing quite a bit of doubles power pretty young at, mm-hmm. yeah. at the levels he was playing at. So it doesn't seem like he was the type you really needed to like give him more tools to add power. It just seemed like he was naturally going to grow into it. Well, and he came up and absolutely killed it in yeah, his he, first run through with we. I remember coming into that his what would have been his first full year after he had that the brief call up and would have been 2011 with the um, with the Blue Jays. He was going in like the third or fourth round because he looked like he could potentially be a superstar. He put up, where's the numbers there? Yeah, his first go around. He had 293, 373, 580 for a 153 OPS plus as a 21-year-old in, you know, 171 plate appearances. But he had nine home runs. And it, it looked for all the world like you were looking at a potential superstar. And it just it did not materialize. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I do understand what Toronto was doing in a way because, like, Lowry, Lowry didn't have a lot of leverage in his swing. Like, he was a double hitter because he didn't create a lot of loft, and they were trying to help him create more loft so those doubles could turn into homers. And, you know, whether it's, you know, with things with launch angle now, like, he didn't create great launch angle when he was down in, in A-ball. Um, it was it was geared for doubles and it was geared for average and it was geared to hit in all fields and it was geared to keep his bat in the strike zone forever. But it was not it was not geared to be a thirty home run hitter. Um, and he had the potential to do that. And so they they changed his swing to give him a little bit more launch angle. Um, it, but it like the bat just didn't stay in the zone for very long. He wasn't really able to time it up over a long period of time, and it just didn't work. Um, and and every you know story you hear about launch angles and in terms of changing swings and how it revitalized guys. There are guys on the other end too, like Brett Lowry, where it just doesn't work. Um, And it's a really tricky thing. And that's why a lot of the times you come in and you try to to create one swing for everybody and it just doesn't. And that's why, you know, I know that we're not talking about this at the moment, but that's why it's so weird with Corey Ray and how you just hear about how his swing is changing all the time. And it's just like, we don't necessarily have a lot of information about what's going on. And we talked about the Keith law thing for a long time, whether it's a toe tap or whether he's trying to get more leverage or what, whatever it is. Sometimes you got to just let guys do what's made them successful over a long period of time. And you can't just tinker with everything because it makes guys lose their rhythm. It makes guys think too much. It makes guys, you know, change so many things. And, and there are pluses and minuses with all of those things, but, um, yeah, I mean, those are all the names that came to mind. And obviously, Matt Gamble would be there, and, and that was an injury issue, especially when he looked that he was going to finally break out. Um, but, yeah, there's a it's, a it's a really good like thing to look back on because there were so many guys that we were excited about that just didn't pan out. And some, and some of them we probably shouldn't have been that excited about it, but, like, the cupboards were kind of bare for a while. And so we needed to, like, put our hopes and dreams on some guys that shouldn't have been – Impact, that shouldn't have been viewed as impact guys. And if we're in the organization now, they would even be top 10 prospects. Yeah. You know, I always look at a guy like, like uh, Ricky Weeks when he was drafted and we thought, okay, here's a guy who's going to be like a batting champion type. And the way he ended up deriving his value once he got to the major leagues was just completely different from what I think we all expected. And I think that was part of the disappointment that some fans had is they thought they're, you know, this was this guy that was going to hit, you know, 330, 340 every season, just constantly knocking the ball around the field when in reality he just ended up being 
an extremely patient hitter who was able to just get on base and wreak havoc once he got there. So, I mean, that was a guy that I think just ended up different, but, you know, still valuable. So, uh oh, we got some. Right. Uh, but like anybody who actually looked at Ricky Wing, like everybody who looked at Ricky Weeks' swing, like, Nobody could have – like, looking back on it, it was foolish to think that Ricky Weeks was going to hit 300. Like, it was foolish. Like, the, he, his bat wasn't in the strike number long enough to, to happen. You know, he struggled with pitches on the outside of the plate just because of the, the way that his swing was built. But, like, he was going to hit for power when he did hit. And he was going to be a power speed guy. And he was going to be – you know, in a lot of ways, he was what Domingo Santana is, like, if you think about it. Um, with – maybe not to, such a great ability to, to draw so many walks or anything like that, but it's, it's a, it's a really weird thing to look back at Ricky weeks because he was the kind of player that if he would have come maybe eight, seven or eight years later, he would have been valued so much more differently than he was by fans when he first came up. Yeah. I think he, he suffered one from being picked second overall. So the expectations were, you know, he was a golden spikes winner. People knew who he was, even casual fans kind of knew who he was right away because, you know, when you take a guy second in the draft and he's a college guy and you give him a big league deal and he came up that first year when he was drafted, he was called up in September to get a cup of coffee with the team. I mean, people had such lofty expectations for him and he was, yeah, you're right. He was a little bit ahead of his time in terms of the the overall skill set. People would definitely appreciate it more now or more people would appreciate it at least than did then. But it was, it was a weird yeah, that the Ricky Weeks thing is. It's such a, uh, it's such a disappointment in that he finally had gotten going and he had the the three good seasons in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Um, two thousand nine was cut short by the the second wrist injury. Two thousand ten, he had a really good season and was having the best season of his career in two thousand eleven when he injured himself against the Cubs. And frankly, at that point, he was never the same hitter again. He was never the same, the same player. Even when he came back, he rushed back to get back for the uh, the playoffs in 2011, and he was just never the same guy. So that's a yeah. That's one where you go, kind of what could have been. He he did suffer through injuries and just wasn't. It it didn't turn out to be what people had really put their their hopes and dreams on, and that. It it sucked for him because I think he took a lot more garbage than he should have as a result of that because he wasn't yeah, a bad agree. player. Um, okay, uh, let's move on. Uh, we have a bunch of questions from Charlie Robolewski, Um, but I'm going to go with the first one, which is uh, what got you into baseball, more specifically Brewers blogging? I've been following you all since Bernie's crew and the pre-JS Online paywall. Uh, it's always been a fan and just curious to learn more about all of you and your experience in the Brewers community. So, JP, how'd you end up get, uh, how'd you get started with blogging and writing and kind of getting connected with the organization a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I grew up in Madison, so I've been a Brewers fan all my life. Uh, aside from, like, the King Griffey Jr. Mariners days where, like, everybody was a Mariners fan at the same time. Um not me. I was and, an Orioles fan. Well, you're weird. And it's, it was something that I think I actually just started doing for, for fun, not really expecting anybody to read it. And I just started blogging on the team because I wanted a way to, to think about baseball differently. Um, I was bored in undergrad and I, I wasn't a very, I wasn't a great student. And so I didn't necessarily study as much as I should have or anything of that sort. And I wanted something to be able to, to challenge me in terms of to dive into something. And, and baseball was what I enjoyed watching. It was what I enjoyed following. And paying much more attention to the minors was a way to, to think about things in a much more deep way than I was with, with schoolwork or anything of that sort. And... I just started doing it and I don't even really understand how people started reading it or how I ended up with Bernie's crew with JS online. I just kind of got an email that asked if I wanted to do it. And 
and then just like people with the organization end up starting to email you and just say, you know, hey, I enjoyed this article or what do you think about this or anything like that. Like people just start reaching out and you start making connections that way and you start going to more minor league games and meet people that way. And things changed a lot for me once I started writing for Fangraphs, especially BP. Uh, once I started writing for Baseball Perspective, I started to meet a lot more people. And blogging for me ended up kind of falling by the wayside once I started graduate school because you know the what baseball presented was an intellectual challenge that just couldn't be solved and it was something that I could analyze as something that I could move into it was I could play with data I could go to scouting and I could talk to people about it and once I started graduate school like I had something else to really dive into and I didn't need baseball as much anymore in the same way I, I watched baseball to relax and I watched baseball to to think about something differently and baseball was just something I was good at and that gave me a release but I didn't need to write about it anymore I actually didn't enjoy writing about it as much which is why the podcast is something that was super appealing um, when when Ryan and Steve asked me to do it and it, it was something in which I didn't have to, to dig into things as much because you know I'm working on comps now for for my PhD program and like my brain melts because of that, but it's, you know, it's a great opportunity to come in and talk baseball for a couple hours once a week and, and dig into something that, you know, doesn't make my head hurt as much. So yeah, I guess that's a long story. Um, but, but it's just, it was something to challenge me in, in a time in my life that I guess I didn't necessarily have the intellectual challenge that I probably should have with undergrad. Well, and I think it's good advice for people who do want to get into writing about the team or any team for that matter, just the biggest thing is to write and keep writing and keep working on it because you just need practice. Well, and to do it consistently because there are so many blogs that are out there, but there are not very many blogs in which one person writes consistently over a long period of time. And one of the big, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got when starting Bernie's crew was that the one thing that you will need to do is to battle attrition. And that there are so many people that are going to start writing about it. And there are so many people that are going to run brew crew ball or they're going to do so many things in terms of writing. But there are very few people that stick it out for a very long period of time. Um, and I mean, I, I, and obviously I was somebody who didn't stick it out for too long. Uh, I mean, I, I probably ran Bernie's crew for with you guys or by myself or Disciples of Euchre for probably five or six years until I started taking time off to go do other things. And it's hard to write day in and day out. And it's especially hard to write in day in and day out once you start having a regular job or you start to do other things. And so being able to commit yourself to writing over a long period of time is how you make it. It's not, and that's how you make connections. It's, it's you give somebody something to read and you give somebody, you make a name for yourself to be able to, that people know that they can go to this website and, and read something. And you give them a reason to come back again and again. You don't need tricks. You don't need video. You don't need all of these things. You need to be able to be consistent and you need to be able to give somebody something that's worth coming back for. And if you do it over a long enough period of time, people notice. Um, people in the game read baseball perspectives. They read blogs. They listen to podcasts. I know that we have people with the organization that listen to this. And, you know, and we have, and I apologize for being stupid. Uh, but, you know, like we... But, I think I like, put that disclaimer all, on every week, so don't worry. Right, yeah. But it's, you know, like people think that you have to be able to do something special, and it's you just need to be intelligent, and you need to be consistent, and you need to commit to doing it over a long period of time. And it's that commitment to doing it regularly that is the most difficult thing to do because, you know, you only have so many interesting things to say. Um, but if you can really commit yourself to understanding something and being able – and the best way to actually understand the Brewers is being willing to look outside the Brewers too um, because the way that you understand how Brewers prospects look is by understanding how the prospects look across the league because if you just look at the Brewers system in its own, you're going to overvalue players. You're going to undervalue players. You're not going to understand you know, that every single organization has a player like Carlos Herrera or like Freddy Peralta or whomever. Like they're not special. Um, they're obviously different, and they're obviously guys that we like more because they're with the Brewers and they're they're their own people who are going to develop in their own way. But in terms of profile, like they're not different. Like a guy like Lewis Brinson is different. Um, but 
it's it's something that I would encourage people to do is if it's like write about the brewers, be an expert in the brewers. But in order to be an expert, you actually have to be knowledgeable about the entire league across the board. Um, would be my would be my suggestion to anybody who does want to to start writing or do anything about that. Yeah. So, and I mean, I know Ryan and I, we both just kind of bounced around a little bit and I've written by far the least. I was the one who once Twitter came about and we could do microblogging. I could just throw out 140 character takes on there as opposed yeah, to actually writing 280 anything. is a stretch. Yeah. 280 is a stretch for me now. So yeah, but you're the <laughs> Ryan, you're the one who, you know, you got between the green pillars, which eventually merged with Bernie's crew. Which eventually merged with Bernie's crew. Yeah, we were on the we were all on the old JS message board, the, yeah. the Brewers message board for a long time, like 2006 to like 2010 ish. Probably before 2006, but yeah, yeah, it, we were on there a lot, and that was sort of the the springboard. And then they started. It was Dan Walsh started uh, the uh, oh sports bubbler, yeah, and it was the old sports bubbler, which was a, a offshoot of uh, of the JS and. I got the between the green pillars on there. I had just shot Dan an email and said, "Hey, I'd like to do this," and he was like, "Oh yeah, great, we'd love to host it." And then because um, there were like three fan blogs or whatever, so there was us, Bernie's crew, and yeah. then I think Nick had his, didn't he? Nick had one, yeah. yeah. Nick had one, and I think there may have been other ones as well. And eventually, it all merged into Bernie's crew, and yeah, yeah, Bernie's and crew. I, and I will say. I will say that uh, Dan Walsh is an absolute hero. <laughs> yes. So, Anything that uh, happens, blame it on Dan Walsh. No, like Dan, Dan is the man and he fought for Bernie's crew so hard when JS would, um, and it just, and it didn't work out, but you know, he was, he, he was the man. He was the one who fought for, for Bernie's crew. He was the one who fought for, you know, for everything in order to make Sports Bubbler work. And, uh, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for being able to try to to set up a fan voice for – it wasn't just the, the Brewers either. It was, you know, it was the Packers, it was the Bucks, it was so many things. Yeah, they had uh, all, the, all the pro Brian, teams, all the college – I want to say Brian Caribou, Real Bird Central, started on there, if I remember correctly. Absolutely. Yeah, that was – Absolutely. That was on there. And Dan, was it Dan – So – Somebody I'm with sure the Bucks. Wall, I'm sure – Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and he still actually writes on it. Um, but you know, this is for Dan Walsh, who I know listens once in a while. Uh, you know, we love you. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. So, um, with that, I'm going to wrap it up today. So uh, that's going to do it for the show this week. As always, follow us on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. You can also submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com. And I will promise that I'm checking more regularly to make sure those questions get on. And you can also uh, submit questions through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and we're in the Google Play Store. Uh, You can leave reviews and help people find the podcast. So thanks for listening and look for us again on Milwaukee's Tailgate.